everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Pioneer Perspective. As always, my name is Brad and I am joined this week with Alex. Alex, say hi. Hello. And we do have a special guest this week as well. Don. Hi. How are you? Say hello. Hi, I'm good. Um, yeah, I'm Don. Don Bringer uh, is usually my handle on the internet. Just like Lyra, which is wonderful. Not like Don from Pokemon, Alex. Hey, come on. Give me a <laughs> Anyway, Dawn is a member here at the MTG at Home Discord, and she also helped us in spectacular fashion with the Invitational we had over the past weekend. Very last second, uh, came in as our streamer to make sure that the Invitational could even happen. Now, we would have had the Invitational happen as far as competition is concerned, and that would have been fine. But without her, we would not have casted the Invitational, being Alex and I and everything else involved that comes into that. So. Don, first and foremost, thank you so much for not only being here today, but helping out with the stream in general. You were fantastic, and we hope to use you and utilize you in the future in many other different ways. With all that being said, though, we need to make sure the viewers, I guess the listeners, it makes sense to say viewers in my head, but you know they're, they're not viewing except for the one time we had the live stream. It makes sense for the listeners to understand and get to know you as a person and as a Magic player. So... When did you start playing Magic? What set brought you into this game? Um, so technically, I think I started playing around Aether Revolt. Um, I didn't really actively participate in like standard or like the like set at the time. I remember the first pre-release I went to was Amonkhet. Um, but that was when I was like real um young and couldn't actually afford Magic. So I took a break during like guilds and then I came back during um Throne of Eldraine. And that's when I've started um, playing a lot more seriously. Um, and actually, that was when Pioneer first started, um, which is the format I've been playing the most. I'm probably certain that was going to be your next question, so I'll just go ahead and talk about it now. Yeah. Um, the first deck I bought into was actually the standard version of Visit Phoenix. Um, but then I realized Pioneer was a thing, and one of the top meta decks uh, at the very start of the format actually was Is It Phoenix. Um, it has not been a meta deck since then, so um, when I'm playing seriously... Um, I will just play Borosburn. I think I have like over a hundred um, matches logged on that uh, deck, and I feel like I'm pretty good with it. Is it Phoenix is still my favorite deck, though? I mean, you've definitely made the joke a few times on the server that you know Borosburn is the best deck, but it's funny that you actually started playing during Aether Revolt because Alex and I actually started playing during Amonkhet. So I started during Aether Revolt. Oh, look at that! My first pre-release was Amonkhet too. So. Uh... We started playing around the same time. I think it was the year after that I was out of school for a year, so I did have the time to play way more Magic than I probably should have. Oh No, I had the time. I just didn't have the money. I was broke. I think I was like right at the start of high school. I had no money. Now I have slightly more money, so I can actually, you know, play a little bit. It It, it is an expensive hobby after all. Yeah, more so than... I suppose Boros Burn is, Boros Burn is more manageable. That helps. Like, it's not like, oh, now I finally have the money and got back into the game and playing four-color Omnath. <laughs> or Soltai. You know, Jace or is Jace yeah, Soltai, Soltai is always expensive. It's the jund of this format. Yeah. Which also means that people either don't have the money to play it or have it foiled. Like, that's what I noticed with people playing jund. They either have it foil or they say, oh, no, I can't afford it. It's too expensive. I mean, I wanted to play it. See, I don't have four euros. I don't feel like buying two more euros. Not because I think he's going to get banned or anything like that, but just like I get bored with playing a deck that's centered around Uro. I think Uro is fine in the format. I really do. 
Get that out of the way now. He's fine. You may not like him, but he's fine. Like, he's just, ugh. But God, he's boring to play. He's so boring to play. Yeah, my problem with Uro even playing against it is just, especially when he was new and I were like Simic Ramp decks with Uro. And my main problem wasn't really, not even the power level, but the fact that I had to kill 15 Uros in one game. And it's like, I get it, it's a 6-6. Six, six. <laughs> I can push it with Revolt and I can eliminate it by default. Cool. <laughs> can we please do something else? I wish Uro was like two mana like Croxus sometimes, just so you could push it without revolting. True. In in every other way, it would be the worst decision they've ever made, but pushing it without revolt would be kind of nice. So, okay, we've had this discussion before that Croxa is a lot more balanced of a card in the fact that it doesn't gain you or actively progress your game plan as like, you know, your deck goes. You know, it you know, it helps in the way that like Rakdos Pyromancer, you want to discard cards and basically take away their value while you, you know, recur your own value. But it only does things on two forms of the axis, right? Not three, like Uro. He just conditionally does three damage to you while making you discard a card, but you don't gain anything out of it yourself besides the 6-6 six, six for four. While Uro is like, I'm going to draw, I'm going to ramp, and I'm going to gain three life. It's guaranteed every time. So what you say is that Croxa shouldn't say if they discard a land, they take three. It's if they discard a land, you blow one up too. Yes, 100%. That would be fair magic. Let's stone rain your opponent every single time you cast a two-minute spell. Every time you cast it and attack. In that case, yeah, so that, that that's really good. But I also think one other really important distinction is that what um, Croxa is trying to do inherently benefits an aggro plan more, and yet it still has the same escape clause, still has the same escape mana cost as Uro. Uro, everything that Uro is doing um, is playing right into the hands of the control decks of this format. Yeah where it's you want to put a ton of lands into the battlefield, you want to draw a lot of cards, and you want to gain enough life to where Burn can't kill you on turn four. Um, whereas Croxa, even though it's similarly costed, it's discarding cards and dealing damage to your opponent. Um, and only the most reactive of quote-unquote aggro decks can even afford to play it, and that's Rakdos Pyromancer. That's the one deck that it can actually be played in. Whereas Uro, you can build so many different piles around that one card. Yeah. If your if your deck has blue and green in it, there should be at least one Uro in your deck. Whereas if your deck has Rectos colors, you definitely don't need to have a Croxa in there unless it works in the deck. And there are plenty of game plans with Croxa that are actively conflicting with Croxa. Like I played early on uh, a Rectos control deck that was centered around Goblin Dark Dwellers in the format. And I love playing that deck. Croxa came out and I was like, I guess I should play this. It's it's Kraktos. It's really good. And it is horrible with Goblin Dark Doors because it's actively, you know, Dark Doors deck trying to cast stuff from your graveyard or your Kroxa deck trying to eat your graveyard and just get the threat out. But going back to the Uro thing, like Uro would be much better in the sense of taking away one of those, just one of them. Take away the three life or the draw or the ramp. Like one of them would help Uro become a lot more swallowable, I guess. I think... To an extent, though, it's also like we're comparing Croxa and Uro, but let's be honest, both cards are unbelievably good. Yes. It's just that Uro is so insane that it makes Croxa look pretty tame. But if we printed Croxa in 2018, people would be like, oh my god, this is the best magic card of all time. Mm -hmm. But it's just because the past two years have been filled with to the brim with dumb cards, Croxa looks fine now. It's just like how you're saying like in Pioneer, like Uro's seems like 
kind of okay. Where it's like, is it though? Like, it is in the context of the format, but not really, like, objectively, Uro is dumb. No, I agree. Like, thank God we don't have fetches. That would make Uro ten times better. We're seeing it the number one... Well, actually, no. It's the number two played card in Modern now. Skyclave Aberration is the number one played card in Modern now. Really? Really. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's at like 20%. Um, at least last time I checked a few days ago, Skyclave had surpassed Uro as the number one played card in Modern. Good Uro answer, I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the last couple of years have been really weird. You can make that same case about the uh, put this card in X year for a lot of cards over the last couple of years, right? Look at like, look at the Great Henge, look at Questing Beast, or like actually just look at a lot of green cards in general. And you're just like, wow. Look at the color green. Yeah, the color green in 2018 would be disgusting. So imagine in 2023 or something, we'll be talking this way about white. It's like, wow, remember 2020 when white was the worst color in Magic? With what Brad just said, Skyclave Apparition, it's the most played card or most played card in modern, and it's insane. Like it's a really, really good card. Yeah, it's 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 super good, but the idea is always like even Skyclave Apparition is at least kind of like fair in design. Right, it does its thing and it exiles the cards, and okay, it's not like when it gets to attack, it gets to do it again. But I can imagine in twenty twenty three, we're going to be like, oh wow, but look at this one mana seven seven Heliod the Returned God or something that they reprinted in Theros three Electric Boogaloo, <laughs> where the clause is like, hey, you need two devotion pips to make this a creature, and it's indestructible. No, it might be a two drop, and it says like you need two pips of devotion, but it's, it's already white white. white. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god like, you're there buddy like you look at some of the cards like baneslayer angel was a extraordinarily expensive card during its time in original standard its original printing and it was a monster to deal with and it gets reprinted and it's like it's literally just meme slayer angel like it does yeah. nothing like it's just bad lyra and even lyra wouldn't be that great it's decent in brawl yeah I mean, if you when you play against that one dragons player at Pioneer and I like, get your L- LGS and you're like, I have this in my side protection from dragons. Yeah, I have it in my sideboard for this reason, and then you you get matched up against him. He's like, <laughs> I, I actually for the great the Orso of Humans deck, I actually got all the other one mana two one humans, which are Mardu Woe Reaper and Dragon Rider, a uh, Dragon Slayer. Something like that. And I could just swap them around if I want. So I, I'm like sitting on them, waiting for the dragons meta. Right? We're gonna like 2022 20, or so, we're gonna go back to Tarkir and we're gonna get so many ridiculous dragons and it's gonna be its time to shine. Oh, they're gonna they're gonna do like a, like a pseudo like redux of like magic origins, but like centered around like the dragon gods and the elder dragons, kind of like they did with M19, but like better oh hell yeah give me more bolas cards yeah bolas back to a creature again another flip creature you got they, they bring it bring ugin as a creature for the first time ever i want to see ugin as a creature please be awesome depends on how interesting he would be though because he was a planeswalker way before nickel bolas was so was he even like has he ever been an interesting creature or did he immediately just like yeah bolas spent a very long time being a dragon because he was always envious of ugin that he was a planeswalker and bolas wasn't so Bola's actually got a lot of stuff done as a creature, whereas Ugin kind of just existed and then became a planeswalker. You could make it a very interesting story. Uh, you could actually have Ugin lose his spark in the story. 
Ooh, and then Bolas gets it. Yeah. And he escapes the meditation realm. And this is how we just managed to just recycle the story. 2024, let's do it again. I mean, there's a reason they didn't kill him, right? He's going to come back one day. Otherwise, he would have just killed him. Oh, of course. And I personally can't wait. But from a story perspective, it would suck. When I heard in War of the Spark that they didn't kill him, personally, I was super happy. But deep down inside, I was like, my God, this is awful storytelling. It's called War of the Spark. And two people die, of which one is in the trailer. Like, <laughs> the main villain doesn't even die. Oh, and, oh, three, actually. Gideon dies, I guess. He's probably going to come back somehow, too. Or he's just going to make him chill on. He did have a nice send-off card. Yeah, he had a card literally called Rest in Peace. I don't think they're going to try to bring him back. That would feel, like, really, really bad if they did that, but... I think next time we go... To, I've heard people say, and I could see it happening, next time we go back to Theros, because Heliod's gone, it's going to be Gideon. Oh, Gideon escapes death? No, Gideon would be the White God. Oh. Like, he even... The rest in peace, his art is even a statue of Gideon on Theros, so that could be, like, something they worship. And, you know, he preaches all the good values, and he's he's generally, at least, he was an asshole at first, but, like, he died like a very selfless death and maybe they like worship him for it and and on theros as long as you're worshipped you can become a god that's how that's how heliod's gonna vanish because people are gonna stop believing in him and if people stop believing in a certain god they will just vanish from existence and that's how heliod's gonna go probably speaking of gods i'm going to be so pissed if we go back to fucking theros before we ever go back to amonkhet i will be furious Come on, let me see one armed Hazaret, please. Please. Give me. Give me her. <laughs> give me a card. One arm. No, I want bionic arm Hazaret. Let's do it. Just a giant robot arm. Hey, again, Egyptian, ancient, ancient Egypt as a culture within like, like human history I is one robot of, arm. No, no, listen. Hold on. Hold on. You'll listen. <laughs> Ancient Egypt was by far one of the most advanced civilizations to ever exist, far ahead of their time, one of the greatest civilizations to ever exist in human history. So it would make sense that when we go back to Amonkhet after their post-Bolas rule thing, and they actually be able to recover, they would continue that advancement a la Wakanda, essentially, in like the MCU. And then that's how we get our cyberpunk like future type of set. Wait, there's still just desert there, and it's like, no, dude, you have to go under the pyramid. And then it's just like, Wakanda. <laughs> Wizards, hire me. I just made an amazing set for you. It's gonna be like Thunderbirds, right? The pyramid just moves up a little bit, and your your yeah. your spaceship could just go under the pyramid, and then you're in Wakanda. Too. You, you've seen the dumb alien memes with like the pyramids with like rockets underneath them as they start going up because they're spaceships. Like, come on, we this is this is a foolproof, amazing idea, billion dollar idea, the first billion dollar selling set in Magic history. You're welcome, Wizards. I think one of the mailback questions we'll get into later is like, what is a theme you want to see? And you just want the History Channel version of Amonkhet. <laughs> here's one. Here's something even better. Not Amonkhet, Ypsilon. Who's friends with, uh, uh, who is it, Sahili? Who's like really, really good friends with Sahili? Watley. Watley. Yeah, no, those two. It would be like really, really on the nose because I think um, a lot of the themes in Ypsilon, it was talking, uh, or it was like kind of um, that Age of Exploration type thing where... Um, all of the dinosaur people were being conquered by the vampires and um, like Spanish conquistadors to Native Americans. And now, guess what? The Native Americans, their allegory for them, now they're just super advanced and we have like robot dinosaurs. I think that'd be pretty cool. 
I think it's at the end of the excellent story that Sahili actually gets interested in building robot dinosaurs. So that's going to have to be a thing at one point. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. We go to, dude, we could go to, we can merge these together. So we have a block because. Scala Ixalan. What happened, what happened last time? What happened last time? We had, um, we had Amonkhet, our Ixalan, Rival's Ixalan. Now we just go Amonkhet returned, Ixalan returned. Same block. And it's just like robots everywhere. Oh, my God. And you bring back Exert and Enrage. It's going to be a while before they absolutely run out of ideas, Brad, and then they might do This that. is a great idea! What do you mean? <laughs> I'm so excited about this stupid thing that will never happen! Please! Obviously, you all can't see it, but Brad literally is turning red. Like, he's so excited, yes. he's turned red. Also, to be fair, it's like 90 degrees in my room. I have a TV on that I forgot to turn off this morning. My light hasn't been off all day. I walked into my room and my door's been closed, too. So, like, I come to my house, it's nice and cool. It's like 70 degrees. You walk into a sauna. Oh. Actually, isn't this a good segue since we're talking about dinosaurs to talk about the Edmentational real quick? Beautiful, beautiful, gracefully done. Perfect segue. All right, here we go. Invitational time. We had an Invitational that we talked about earlier take place on the 28th of November, last Saturday. Dawn was our streamer, like I said before. Thank you again so much for happening. Uh, happening. Yes, thank you. Thank you for Helping. existing. Helping. Yes. Words. Alex, thank you for joining as well and casting alongside myself. It was very fun. And Alex, we had a winner of the, the actual Invitational. Who won? Who was the winner? All right. So he's trash talked me in chat before, so I can say this. Slightly disappointingly, Sir Epic won because dinosaurs couldn't win the tournament. <laughs> I'll be honest. And I think I already told him I was kind of rooting for dinosaurs because, man. But the winner was Sir Epic, who won the last Pioneer Invitational 2, and he was playing a blue-white spirits build with some very noticeable cards missing, like sort of like a metagamed deck. Yeah. With the most important part being is that he missed he didn't have any Shacklegeist or Nebelgast Herald. Yeah. Um he purposely built his deck to be very anti-control. Or control, more like the slower decks, so the Omnath decks, actual control decks, um, reclamation decks, that sort of thing. And it paid off. His first round was against, I think, either blue-white or esper control. I think blue-white control. Yes, on approach of the second sun. Yeah, approach, which is like, try and resolve a seven-mana sorcery against spirits. Good luck. His second game was against uh, four-color Omnath, which was also pretty quick wrap-up. Yeah. And then his third one, the finals, was actually against Gruul Dinosaurs. Which, you know, Dinosaurs had an interesting way to get to that point, too. Round one, they took on the opposite Gruul deck, which, again, you made the joke during the cast, or I'm sorry, during the actual presentation of the Invitational, where it's like, yeah, typical Gruul versus Gruul matchup. It's like, no, one of these is Dinosaurs, and the other one is Possibility Storm. Have fun. And they took down Possibility Storm. So great showing for them. And then they had the dream matchup of Esper Control, because this Esper Control that we know and love in Pioneer is very focused on enchantments and things like that. So a lot of the removal just doesn't hit the big dinos. So it's just like, okay, I have a 4-5 Ripjaw Raptor. You have an Oath of Kaya. Cry. And you just kind of go from there. Yeah, so like, very noticeable because the um, the control deck, that's as, that Esper Control deck in particular, was actually built as an anti-slow slash control deck too. So it had cut a lot of removal, generally keeping in the Oath of Kaya because of how good it is against Burn. Um, really trimming. I think there was one Trial of Ambition, even though it's a Yorion deck. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and it had four Thoughtseize, four Thought Erasure, and four Dovin's Veto, which literally all suck against dinosaurs. And then there's a bunch of Planeswalkers that don't do enough, and Oath of Kaya's against a deck full of four toughness creatures. Like, man, you think like, oh, creature deck versus control deck? I got this. You don't. <laughs> you absolutely don't. Almost all of these players were metagaming control-centric meta. Aggro side, you had Burn, Feather, Spirits, Dinos, and then Possibility Storm is an aggro and control deck all packaged into one. But still, that's five aggro decks, two of them being extremist, and then one of them being close to as fast. Um, I don't think that metagaming was completely cracked. Um, yeah, I think I think you're right. Uh, to an extent, like I feel like most decks were uh, same with the Esper control deck. They were geared for control and burn, and for Dovin's veto. That seems like you're diving too deep. So many planeswalkers, maybe like Oath of Liliana, even, which is actually a card you can just play raw and get some more value out of your planeswalkers in slower matchups too. Do me a favor, for those of you who just like don't play bad oaths. What does Oath of Liliana do again? Oh, Oath of o Liliana is great. So it's three mana for an enchantment, two and a black. It comes in, it edicts, so it's literally Trial of Ambition. However, at the end of every turn, if a Planeswalker entered the battlefield under your control, you get a 2-2 zombie, which is actually really good. The only problem is obviously the difference between two and three is a bit big. But if you run a lot of Planeswalkers, it's actually like, and you're playing a Yorion deck, it's probably a one-off. People should play more than they do. I'm not saying like everybody should slam four in their Yorion deck, because absolutely not. But it is actually a pretty good card, because it's really nice value to get out of it. I think the Oaths in general are like overall pretty good cards. The Oath of Chandra like bolts your opponent. Oath of Gideon means your creatures come in with extra, uh, extra loyalty. Oath of Jace means she gets to scry. So like, the oaths in these super planeswalker heavy Yorion decks are, I'm not saying like super underrated, but probably deserve more attention than they do because I feel like they've been kind of glossed over recently. When they did see quite a lot of play, when Yorion like was everywhere because the rule hadn't changed yet. Yeah, but the least impacted companion by far. Yeah, 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 sure. But like, it lost a lot of value because how it used to play obviously is just turn two, like. Enchantment, that's a removal spell. Turn three, enchantment, that's a removal spell. Turn four, do whatever you want. Turn five, play a four, five, and two removal spells. And because that line went, the floor that your enchantment has to have has gone up. So, like, more cuter cards like Oath of Liliana has kind of, like, lost interest because of that. Um, and actually, I think that's a, just talking about Esper Control, that's a really good segue into talking about exactly how these decks metagamed uh, for this perceived heavy control meta, where, um, yeah, that, where Esper Control cut Trial of Ambition, which is one of their absolute best uh, removal spells, and then doubled up on Thought, or like, had so many Thought Erasers, had four Dovin's Veto, four Thought Seas, they were extremely expecting, like you said, Control and Burn, and that was the only thing that this deck was really able to beat. Whereas you look at how Spirit, what they did is they cut Rattle Chains and Shacklegeist, but that didn't matter because there were only two extremely fast aggro decks. The other aggro decks in the format were Dinos and Possibility Storm, 
these are not particularly fast. They go big, and sometimes you do want the t the, to be able to tap things, but still, spirits kept their Skyclave apparitions, they kept their spell quellers the as a four of, um, and in the sideboard they have two Teferi Time Ravelers. They still have the tools to be able to fight aggro, but what they're still looking for is they're saying, um, I, I like, or what, what uh, Sir Epic Dead has uh, made a bet, I don't think there's going to be more um, than like one fast aggro deck that I'm going to have to go against. So I'm going to build my deck in a way that goes faster than um, all these slower aggro decks while still being able to fight a bit. And I think that's that like that specific um, construction and also just his mastery of the deck um, really carried him to victory in the Invitational. I think that's really important to outline. Yeah, I think it's also based on the nature of the deck, right? And if you play Spirits, which at its core is still like a fairly low-to-the-ground creature deck, like it, it's still kind of aggro, that means even if you make like the wrong call, you're always less punished for it. Because I'll be honest, I think Dinos was really favored in that matchup. Game one, uh, Sir Epic was on the play, and he had probably the fastest draw Spirits can have. He went one drop, then one drop, so okay, he could have had two one drops. But like at least like he went a body on turn one, a body on turn two, then a lord on turn three, and a lord on turn four, and he held up a counter spell. Like that is about as good of a draw you get with spirits, and you're on the play, because even that draw in that first game I think would have probably lost him the game had he been on the draw, even though that is such a such a fast draw, because dinos just go so big. But by the nature of the deck. Because you're more aggro based, it's just like the, the dino deck stumbled a little bit. And that small stumble could be punished by the fact that you're more aggressive. Whereas if you give a control player an extra turn and they draw a Dovin's Veto against the dinosaur deck, they're still going to be really far from winning. Right? And I think that's a big difference. It's kind of a problem that control has had in general and has in very wide fields. That's why we see these control decks being much more proactive with things like Oath of Gaia, Trial of Ambition, that you can just play naked and sort of stack it up for once your Yorion comes down to like power up your Yorion play when you do. And stuff like Doom Foretold, so you can sack it to it. And that's what this Esper build kind of went away from with so many hand attacks, Dovid's Vetoes, and it went to play a more traditional control role, which is very hard to do in a uh, open meta game with so many different decks. Um, I think we we didn't see the blue white approach list, but we talked about it. Brad and I talked about it before the broadcast. Um, where I noted the deck has main deck. It had I think two Dovin's Fido and two Essence Scatter, and I was talking like, what meta are you expecting? Creatures or no creatures? Right where it feels like no matter what matchup you're playing against, you always have the problem that if you draw the wrong half of your deck, you lose. And that's the nature of such an open metagame where control really struggles. Yeah, the the builder here like didn't seem to make up their mind because you see this in like so many ways. They also have two Sensor and two Absorb. They have three Teferi Time Raveler to settle the wreckage. They absolutely are not making up their mind as to whether they want to play against control or aggro. And you need to be able to do that in a control deck. Yeah, especially Blue-White. I think Blue-White is the deck that's punished the most by it. Because like, if you're playing Esper, I mean, this build didn't have that as much. But if you run Esper with like Hero's Downfall, right, or it loses life, but like a card like Anguished Unmaking, right, which like at least it, it gets anything, 
Whereas if you're playing uh, blue-white control, because white removal is generally so weak, you tend to lean into more counter spells. Like I, I play a lot of like traditional control decks, of course. And what I notice when I look at like blue-white builds is that they tend to have like two or three more counter spells, and they always tend to be the low curve ones, like Essence Scatter, Horribly Ori, uh, more negates in their main deck, because that's their removal slot, where you would, in a black deck, see like Eliminate or Heartless Act in those slots, which sort of like fill like a broader spectrum. But blue-white is generally a deck that has to really like focus on a meta. And when the meta is right, right, and you pack your four main deck Dovin's Veto in a meta where it's good, blue-white crushes tournaments. Like, you sometimes randomly see, like, the, the stars align, and you'll see on, like, the SCG tour, like, once that comes back, you randomly see, like, in modern, a player being, like, out of nowhere, plays blue-white and just goes undefeated, because they've cracked it. But as you pointed out, Don, this deck was all over the place. So it, it didn't, like, try and crack any metagame. It just kind of, like, threw a lot of cards against the wall and was just hoping to write, to draw the right half of the deck. And that, that doesn't work when you play blue-white. That's the big thing I wanted to touch on was that right there, Alex, drawing the right half of the deck. Because they're very split down the middle of whether they want to go against control or creatures. And another thing that's really weird is Fumigates in the main, um, opposed to any of the four-mana wraths that exist in the format what's your supreme verdict like if you're playing blue white and you're not playing supreme verdict why are you playing blue white like it, yeah and then we we mentioned this too on the cast because i was i made a joke i'm like i guess they really fucking hate burn it's like they need that one life gain and then you look at the side it's like cleansing nova and you're like what are you doing is this for the esper player i don't know what you want yeah, like for their sideboard, like I'd actually say that maybe this type of deck building could work. Of course, switch those two gates for Supreme Verdicts, please. But I think the style of deck building might actually work where you are split down the middle. If the rest of the copies of your cards are in your sideboard, you just hope to draw the right half of your deck in game one. And oh, well, if you lose, that's actually not that big of a deal because your sideboard lets you perfectly tune to be able to beat almost any meta. Let's look at the sideboard. Two Ashok Dream Render, two Authority of the Consoles, a cast out there's, there's another fun one it's the, it's yeah we made the joke about this on the cast too i don't mean to drag poppin nades he's a great player he there's a reason he's here and made it this far but come on dude cast out next one's binding what are you doing why why one of each i'll be honest again because i've been giving him a lot of lot well a lot of crap but like i've had a lot of things to say it's because i also obviously play a lot of traditional control and if I would somehow stumble my way into the Invitational, you bet I play Grixis Control, even though I'm probably going to go 0-3, right? And then I, if I ever somehow stumble into the Invitational, I'm probably going to have to give myself a lot of crap when I come back on the cast. They're like, what, what was this Grixis idiot doing, right, with his deck building? <laughs> because playing Control into an open metagame is almost impossible, right? It's kind of a fool's errand, especially in Magic in 2020, where counter magic and stuff is like at like an all-time low in terms of how effective it is. Because they keep like the only good counter spells they're generally giving us are niche ones, like Dovin's Veto, which is like one of my least favorite cards of all time, by the way. But like Dovin's Veto is really good. Of course, it's really good. But if you're a creature meta, it's it's shit. Yeah. So so one thing to keep in mind when it comes to the invitationals. We've had this every single time. This was our seventh invitational. Our only second one we've casted, but seventh in general on the server. This is where you bring your jank, 
right? This happens all the time. This is the event you bring your jank. It's kind of like the mindset of like, I made it to Mythic on Arena. I'm done playing the Soltai Uro pile. I'm just going to be like, let's bring Dinos kind of thing. Where the invitation is the same kind of idea. And there's a little bit of metagaming. There's a little bit of that going on. Sir Epic has done that twice now. He was the Enchanters player. I don't, don't want to beat the dead horse. We talked about this before in the cast. But Enchanters player last season. And also he's just like, I'm going to bring Rakdos Pyromancer to the Invitational two days before we start. And then he wins it because people metagamed against him. You know, about half the field metagames against Enchantress for the sideboard. This time around, he's like, do it again. I've been playing Rakdos Pyromancer the entire time. 53 out of his... 60 points, I believe he told me, were on Rakdos Pyromancer for the season throughout for Pioneer. And he just brings blue-eyed spirits. Like, he is great at metagaming, and he's a great player in general. He also spends a lot of time on it, because I remember, I think a couple weeks ago, and I don't know if this was in, in anticipation of the Invitational, because all he would say is that it was in anticipation of a tournament. No idea which one. And he had been brewing up like all different lists, and he sent me... Probably the strangest Demir control list I have seen in my life, right? And he was like, at every turn, I was like, I think there were like three unmourned Ego in the main deck. And I'm like, what? And he just, because he just kept at trying a lot of things. And because of the time zone difference, and I gave him some feedback, and then I went to bed, and next morning I woke up, and he already had a message. And he's like, yeah, I tested it, it's bad. <laughs> and it's like, to an extent, I was like, I could have told you that, but try and experiment and put in the effort right that he does and it pays off because he tends to show up with decks with generally like tweaks to them so i think the rectal's pyromancer list was like kind of stock but there he just made the meta call for the right deck and harry like took it a step further where it's like i think this deck is good but with these tweaks it's better for the Rakdos Pyromancer list, you were the consultant for this controllish kind of thing. I was the consultant for Rakdos Pyromancer, and I spent like a week and a half with him trying to fine-tune his list and figure out how to do it for that invitational. Well, actually, let me rephrase. He You built the mana base, right? Wasn't that? I built the mana base for Enchantress. I've built I built that mana base, uh, which I am very proud of. <laughs> he has had he has not changed it in the last four months since I built it. Mana bases are fun to build. So if you ever struggle with a mana base, I get bored easily. Please throw your deck at me. I'll spend like three hours on it. Just please. I love doing that. Brad will spend three ma- three hours on checking the colors on your lands. Yes. God, I I just I I've bookmarked the Frank Karsten article. How many colored sources do I need? Ravnica update, <laughs> and I just use that. And then I tend to always uh, swap arts, so I know like what I've swapped. So like I have a Steam Vents. But I had like the, um, what's the first one? Guilds of Ravnica Steam Vents. But then I put in like a guild packed Steam Vents instead of like a Sulfur Falls. So every time I drew that, I knew like, oh, this could have been a Sulfur Falls. And then that's sort of how I tend to test like yeah. mana bases and tweaks. While we're on the subject of mana bases, I, this this doesn't have to do with Pioneer. So maybe I'm like uh, speaking Harris that's fine. podcast um, because it is the Pioneer perspective. It's actually a modern deck that um, I'm probably going to be playing soon. So it's an Is It Control list. Mm-hmm. Um, that plays three islands. And I don't mean just like n- cards named island. I mean cards that are islands at all. And it also plays Boil on the sideboard. Yeah, the Aspiring Spike is at list. That was so cool. Yeah, what do you think of that? It's That is some absolutely amazing deck building. So for the people who, like for a quick rundown. So in Modern, a card that's becoming a little bit more popular is Boil, which is literally just three and a red destroy all islands. 
because through Mystic Sanctuary, people have been playing a lot of islands. And one of the more fun ones, too, is when people play Dryad of the Elysian Grove and Amulet Titan, everything is an island. So you just one-sided Armageddon. The, the card's actually crazy powerful. It's one of those really old cards. But I heard it first from Aspiring Spike. I don't know if he's the first, but build a deck, a is it control deck, but none of the blue lands are islands. It's all the Pathway, Spire Bluff Canal, those sort of cards. So he can actually play Boil, even though his deck is blue. It's brilliant. He's smart. I was blown away when I heard about it. Yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just good deck building, right? If you've listened to the show before, you already know Aspiring Spike's name because we've mentioned him a few times as the designer and creator of the Mono Green Planeswalkers deck. Um, obviously, it's gotten fine-tuned since then by other great players like Doomwake, but Aspiring Spike designed it. He's a, an amazing deck builder. I think Aspiring Spike's original list, probably still like 60 to 65 of the cards, are still. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the few that get changed is that three drop slot. Whether you want to go into Jade Light Ranger or do you go Elvish Mystic. And I do want an Emrakul in your wish board. That's generally one. Yeah. Do you want Hedron Network? But those are a couple of the cards that are up to debate. Yeah. For some reason, you'll play Emrakul and Ulmog. And it's like, you really want to win more, don't you? You're going to cast both those in the same game? I don't think you are. It's when casting a 10-10 and exiling two permanents is it good enough. You need that 13-13 flying trample. Mm -hmm. Going back to the Invitational, real quick, before we get off of this and move on to the rest of the metagame that happened over the last weekend, as far as challenges, champs, and prelims are concerned, we saw Epic, like we said, take down Dinosaurs, but unfortunately, it was in a lackluster fashion. Games one and two were interesting, fun to watch. It was just a little bit back and forth. Who's going to win the race? I mean, ga game two, Sir Epic didn't have a white source for like four turns. So even that's that true. was... Yeah, that's true. But we saw Mr. Dinosaur himself keep a six land, or I'm sorry, not six land, a six-hander. And he kept four drop, four drop, four drop, Reckless Rage, two lands, hoping to draw into stuff on the draw. You, you just can't... You know you're going against Spirits. You know that's what's going to be coming at you. You saw game one. You literally just played it. Understandable. Is that... Because this tends to happen with this... We talked about how the Gruul Dinosaurs deck tends to think... Because there's a lot of Haymakers in the deck. Mm -hmm. And we keep calling it Gruul Dinosaurs, which is a little unfair because there's only like 14 Dinosaurs in. It's almost more like a Marauding Raptor deck because the creature discount actually counts for everything, not just for Dinosaurs. It just gets the buff if it hits a dinosaur. But it can really like power through a lot of removal. That idea. Like if you whatever you keep throwing at the dinosaur deck, it will top deck some sort of haymaker and fight its way through it. And that's probably how a lot of your games go. I think the mistake that was made here is that you had to acknowledge that the number of spells you play in this match are probably going to be very low. Because we saw in three games, like two pieces of interaction being cast. It's a very uninteractive game. So the fact that you have multiple four drops, you're like, yeah, because I play four drop, they deal with it, then another one, they deal with it, then another one, and I'm going to overwhelm my opponent. That's how you win a lot of your games, but that's not what this matchup was about. And he probably kept a hand that's actually pretty reasonable in like a lot of matchups, but not this one. So maybe, maybe it was nerves, maybe it was like, I don't know what region... He played from, I think he played from North America, whatever. Maybe he was tired, maybe he had a long day, and he sort of like autopiloted, right? I think that might have happened. This was like an autopilot hand. 
No, I get that. Right, where sometimes you're like playing a control deck and you see a hand with like, you know, four lands, uh, a sinister sabotage, and a draw spell, and you're like, yeah, I can keep this. And your opponent goes turn one, mounted soul scar mage. You're like, oh yeah, I was playing against burn, wasn't I? <laughs> I can see that happening. It was an interesting event, regardless. It was a fun event. I had a blast casting it, as I always do. Same. Um, I look forward to next month when we do Modern. Uh, Modern was a lot of fun last time I did that. And, you know, this is just awesome for the server. We're growing. We're having more people come in. We had 65 individual faces for the Pioneer leaderboard that consisted over the last eight weeks. So that's 65 individual players. That's That's pretty cool. But... Speaking of other games, speaking of Pioneer in general, as far as the metagame goes, we did have other stuff happen over the weekend in the form of challenges, Pioneer champs, and like I said, some prelims. First things first, let's take a look at the initial challenge that took place on the 28th. So we had two challenges, right? Yeah, 28th, 29th. Okay, so to get into this, the first... This challenge on the 28th was won by a player with the name of Gotalicious. Fergalicious. And when I clicked on it, on the challenge, I saw the first deck was Mono Red. I was like, oh, you know, Mono Red Aggro. Like, I, I guess with Burn, you know, like, why not play Mono Red, blah, blah. I click on it. The first card I see is Ugin the Spirit Dragon. I'm like, that's not Mono Red Aggro. I mean, he does, he burns your opponent for three, but that's not how you tend to win games. No, this is, and I love this because I have talked about this in the past when Zendikar Rising came out. This is an Ironcrack Feet deck. Now, for people who aren't familiar with the card, Ironcrack Feet is four mana. So uh, one red, red, red for a sorcery. Add seven red mana. You can cast only one more spell this turn. So effectively, you get to like massively cheat on mana, but only one card. So you can, like, storm off with it or do other crazy stuff. Or activated abilities, I guess. That works, too. So with that, you make a leap in mana, and the big payoffs, generally, are one Chandra Awaken Inferno, uh, which is really funny against control, because control against ramp always has the idea of, I'm not going to counter the ramp, I'm going to counter the payoff. So you cast an Iron Crack feed, and they're like, yeah, I'm not going to counter that. I'm, you know, you're going to go one more spell, I'm going to counter that. And they play Chandra that can be countered, and they instantly lose the game. Source, I have had this happen to me. And and Ugin, as I mentioned before. Or Golos, Tireless Pilgrim. Now this deck is mono-red, but there is Cascading Cataracts. You can tutor that up with Golos. And because of the way, you know, Cascading Cataracts work, you can even just play an Ironcrack feat, channel five of the mana through the um, Cascading Cataracts, and get a Golos spin. Which means you can even, if you have multiple Cascading Cataracts, you can actually chain those, which is kind of funny. Because if you're one of your Golos spells is an Ironcrack feat, you can just dump that mana into another Golos activation if you manage to have the Cataracts open. So I can imagine this deck does some crazy turns. So that's what the deck does. You've got Chandra Torch of Defiance, Thought Not Seer 2 for like some early filler, means there's a lot of colorless lands, and it just plays giant red spells, right? We've had big red. This is huge red, and I love it. One thing that is an amazing addition that I want to point out that this deck was missing when we had saw the earlier builds of this early on in the format. Valakut Awakening, I think, is an amazing card in this deck. Just better Magical Mallet. I'll keep saying that. For those of you who don't get it, I do not care. Magical Mallet is a Yu-Gi-Oh card that says, 
shuffle your hand back into your library, draw equal amounts. So the problem with that is, though, a typical hand in Yu-Gi-Oh! is five cards when you start out. So if I have five cards of hand, I cast Magical Mallet, I shuffle four back, draw four. With Valkyrie Awakening, the wording is put any number of cards from your hand on the bottom of your library and then draw that many cards plus one. So it replaces itself here, unlike Magical Mallet. So this is just better in every way. Now, of course, it's a completely different game. I get it. But it's ultimately the exact same effect plus one. Yeah. The idea is, is that it, it's not card disadvantage. Yes. And that's the great thing about it. Now, I have actually played this deck. Like when Zendikar Rising was out, I spent like one or two weeks playing this deck. Now, I had an, an untuned version of it. Uh, my printer broke, so I had to handwrite all my proxies, and I got lazy, so I didn't change the deck, because I was like, oh, I'm going to have to write more proxies, so whatever. And I was playing it casually, but I noticed that the deck had potential. Like It is a really powerful deck. It tends to just be weak against counter spells, but they're at a bit of a low right now, as we talked about, so then this type of deck generally works. And Valakut's Awakening, and like some of the other new cards, like Maze Mind Tome 2, amazing card, like better treasure map, at least if you have so much mana to work with, it's probably better treasure map. It's just very powerful because generally you don't have the card draw in red. If you're flooding, you could just hold a bunch of lands and just be like, Valakut's Awakening, okay, cool, three mana, draw five new cards. It's like, that is really important out of a slow red deck because you don't want to flood. Yeah, I just, I love this deck. It's so funny to look at it and be like, oh, it's a 20 land deck running top end of eight mana. Amazing. Like, that is... A ridiculously ambitious curve if you don't, you know, look at Iron Crack V as a card. But, you know, we love rituals. Now, Don, do you have anything like to say about this? Like, have you played decks like this? Maybe you've played Tron and Modern, which feels very similar to, or? So I haven't played decks like this, but I actually, I find it kind of weird that this deck was able to win. I think it might need to be tuned a bit if it wants to be really successful in a metagame like this, because we're seeing a metagame that's shaping more and more, or maybe it's actually moving away. Either way, there is um, a lot of like this dichotomy of like fast aggro versus permanent soup type decks, um, where like Burn and Feather and Orzavoras uh, represent that fast aggro, and then Mono Black aggro to an extent does too. Um, and then that's uh, pitted up against those like permanent soup decks, like I said. And I don't see this big red type deck um, ever winning against uh, fast aggro without incorporating some kind of removal into their game plan. Because the list I'm seeing here, I, I think there was a similar thing that happened uh, in their minds as a lot of people did during um, our Invitational, where this person said, there's going to be permanent soup decks and it's pretty much all there's going to be. I'm going to make this a huge bet. It ended up working out really well. Um, maybe that's uh, starting to show that um, our metagame's moving away from those fast aggro decks and uh, with some of our, uh, with, with the way the metagame's moving and um, with the additions of certain new cards, um, maybe it's more viable to go for that permanent soup style deck. So we need ways to beat that. And I actually think Big Red, especially seeing that it won, it won the challenge here, I think that's a really good way to do it. Um, it punishes them because it's fast in a way that um, those, again, permanent soup decks can't really answer. Uh, all you can really do is counter spells. Um, and even then, that sometimes doesn't work, um, like you outlined earlier. Yeah, like, um, again, having some experience with the deck, the idea is always it is good against permanent soup because early, early Ugins tend to be good against permanent soup decks. Uh, I agree with your point against aggro. However, this deck, someone saw this list and tuned it a little bit for the challenge the day after, where they put like more Golos in the deck. Uh, and I think they cut a Bone Crusher Giant. Yes, it's early removal, but it is also a little bit slow. 
they cut the anti-control Chandra. I think they even cut one Ironcrack feeding edition, and they had just some more Golos to have this sort of roadblock. Because through Vessel of Volatility, which is uh, a two-mana enchantment that you can put two mana into to get four red mana, you can play a turn three Golos, which is actually, as a 3-5, is a really good roadblock. And when I played this deck, I played Glorybringer in that spot as like a sort of similar uh, idea where like I have a turn five card I can turbo out on turn three. That is a good roadblock. In that way, it's actually okay against aggro. Now, fast aggro draws, this deck can stumble. And if you stumble against burn, you're dead. So that's generally the games it loses. A card I would like to see try in this deck, because I was very happy with it, playing it myself, is Mizia Mortars. Because this deck actually has a very real chance of overloading it. And therefore using it as either early game removal, 2 mana, deal 4, or 6 mana, deal 4 to everything your opponent has. That even keeps your Thought Not Sears and your Bonecrusher Giants alive. So that's like a card I could see in this deck if you want more against aggro. Or maybe like Spike Field Hazard, though a lot of the cards out of Mono Red tend to have two toughness. You know, uh, Swift Spear, uh, Soulscar Mage, Luris have a lot of two toughness creatures, so I'm not too sure on Spike Field Hazard, but that card could work. But yeah, I do agree that if there's. We're moving a little bit away from aggro, but if aggro like makes some sort of a U turn and like comes back in full force because people find some sort of way to tweak it we'll talk about in a bit, we saw the second challenge being won by Mono Red Aggro, then I think this deck might be in trouble. Well, before we move off of this deck, you you make a good point saying that like you see that, or you can understand that it could stumble against Aggro and that kind of thing. I'm looking at this list, and I feel oddly confident in its uh, Aggro matchup. Obviously, we've got four Anger of the Gods main. That's great. we got Bone Crusher Giant to get some early stuff out. Cool. Good enough. Nothing else main. So I can even with just those eight cards right there, I think you could easily steal game one. But moving on to the sideboard, Blast Zone, Ratchet Bomb, Storm's Wrath, Hour Devastation. I think those are good. But we did talk about like a couple weeks ago how burn was on the rise because all these slow decks felt like three mana sweepers was enough. So they all went like like Omnath decks were all like, oh, I'm just gonna play like play some ramp and dirt all around and then play a three mana sweeper to like wipe the board of the mono black aggro player and I'll be golden and burn punished that. And I don't feel like either adding more sweepers or putting bone crusher giant in your deck suddenly means burn doesn't punish that anymore. No, I don't, I'm not saying that, but you have to look at the different payoffs though, right? I think the difference is you look at this deck and then going into an Ugin after you sweep the board kind of thing is different from like uh omnath in a sense like i get they're both gaining life but ugin is just a different beast oh ugin gains life when he ults so that's i mean he ults relatively quickly like i see what you mean and i think that's what's cool about this deck and it feels because that's why i mentioned tron it feels like tron in modern but then worse because it's less consistent but like the idea in modern is where Tron is probably better in more metas than it sees play. Because turn three Karn is never really a bad thing to do. Right? Turn three Karn or turn four Ugin, you can never be really wrong about playing an Ugin or a Karn on turn four or three, right? Yeah. And that's what this deck can do too. 
Like the craziest draw is turn two vessel of volatility, turn three iron crack feet. You play an Ugin on turn three. And I've done that. And if it's on the play, your opponent plays whatever one drop. I think I went up against like Gruul Aggro and they played like, uh, what's the one man I won one with haste and battalion? Legion Loyalist. They went like Legion Loyalist, Kalia of the Endless Dance. And I played an Ugin. Like, that just feels like straight up cheating. And those type of draws kind of beat any deck. And that's why I feel this deck always has a little bit of... It always has some game. Because of how disgusting its draws can be. Especially through Iron Crack Feet. Yeah, this, this feels like... You know what this deck feels like to me? Like what I feel like it draws similarities to? Monogreen uh, uh, Planeswalkers. This feels like the red version of Monogreen Planeswalkers. Where you just do this stuff that gives you again, they're they're parallel decks, right? They are not the exact same. It's not a one-to-one ratio. But the ultimate game plan that you're achieving is big things with just the ability to get there early. Obviously, this one seems a bit more fragile than Monogreen, because you can at least make bodies stick in Monogreen and like have like, you know, Vivian put counters on them. And if you kill the Vivian, you still have, you know, these elves with counters and things like that. So that's where that deck is probably a lot better versus things like burn where this deck can have that little bit of a stumble but i still feel like you have the incident in the life gain with maze mind tome i can't tell you how many games i've lost randomly because like oh shit they just gained four life off maze mind tome i'm too far behind now and they've been filtering their deck the entire time even when i've been on a decks like burn so this deck on paper i can definitely agree with you guys burn can look like a big stumble for them but I can also see a lot of games where you're like, surprisingly, Burn's not that bad of a matchup. Yeah, like it, it's not like the 80-20% it looks like against Burn. I'd say it's still like a again, like numbers are always a bit like iffy, but like, yeah, it's still like a 60, 40, 65, 35. But like if you play a tournament, and we talked about this during the invitational too, where we had like this meta game call by sir epic that was then in the finals you're like yeah but now you're up against dinos where your meta call is incorrect it's like yeah but that's how you win tournaments yep. you maximize your odds you play into a f- you make a prediction about the field and if you make that call correctly you, you're still not guaranteed to win you just maximized your odds which almost always means you have to get through one or two decks that don't fit your meta call and you're just gonna have to get lucky right yeah if you're the dog against burn, like burn is not a big enough part of the meta that like in every challenge, which is like six rounds, you play against like four burn opponents. No, you can play a challenge and see like one or no burn decks. And all you have to do is win that one matchup, which is like a 35% or something, right? Which is still like decent odds. Last thing I want to bring up on this challenge, at least. Good God, as all spells come like full force right back into the meta. That thing fell off to like an 8% a few weeks ago when it was absolutely dominating the meta early on. Then burn came out, and now it's just sitting right back in second place. In this challenge, six burn decks, five oops all spells decks, and then you see four niv, uh, three wilderness reclamation, and then two or less for everything else. Oops all spells, while not winning it, got second, fourth, and fifth place. That's an impressive representation. Yeah, I don't know if you want to comment on it first, uh, Don, because I've got some things to say. Um, I could be wrong here with matchups for Oopsaw spells because I'm actually not that familiar with how their matchup, uh, matchups go. But am I correct in saying that like, aggro is generally what they don't want to be facing? Yeah, I can agree with that. Like You, you, you stumble a little bit in terms of all tap lands. 
No, I I'm not too sure about that. It depends on the build. There's def there's builds of Upsal spells that are like tuned to go off on turn three. Yeah, we're saying like uh, again, we're talking and we have to talk in generalities here. Um, when we're, especially when yeah, we're looking and at... I think it's actually okay because I think aggro in this format tends to be like aggro wins don't tend to be turn four wins, and this deck is pretty com- like even if a burn deck has a decent start. There is a chance you're still at like five or six life on turn four, right? If you have anything to throw in their way. In that case, my my big question is, what is Upsal Spell's bad matchup? Talking in theory and not just in this metagame, what what is the last thing they want to play? Decks with interaction, decks with good interaction that that can stop your game plan. Interaction is difficult, and if your opponent brings the right graveyard hate, and that kind of applies to any deck. But this will be talked about in the the past few weeks when we mentioned this deck. We saw a lot of Soul Guide Lantern uh, come up to counter this deck, which meant the deck was down in play for like one or two weeks because, like, man, Soul Guide Lantern is like everywhere. Like, every deck had like two, three, sometimes four Soul Guide Lanterns in them. Then some genius discovered that if you just pithing needle their Soul Guide Lantern, it doesn't work. And now every Oopsal Spells list runs like two or three Soul Guide Lantern. And I think most have gone back down to a roughly 60-card deck, so you're more consistent at finding said Pithing Needle, uh, as opposed to like the 80-card monstrosities without Yorion that we saw a couple weeks back. Now, here's what I think is an interesting way. All three, by the way, in the top end, just just don't mean to cut you off, but all three in the top end are Yorian 95 listers. 95 total. Oh, really? Yeah, all three. are they're, they're running Yorian right at it, right at 80. Yeah, this is what I'm trying to highlight earlier. I think the the fact that we're seeing the champions that we are, and the fact that we're seeing other things at, at high precedence in the in these top 32s, we're moving away from a meta that favors tempo and fast aggro. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, and I, I think that's something that we really have to keep in mind as we play more um, Pioneer. Permanent soup is going to be um, better, and we need to know how are we going to beat this. So I think that's just really important to start thinking about, especially as our metagame shifts. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I want to make a quick comment with the Upsal spell. So yeah, so I thought more most of the lists I look at were like lower numbers, but then you see the big ones are still um, Yorion decks and actually running Yorion. One of them didn't even run Pithing Needle, but there's an interesting thing that was that I saw happening in some of the sideboards, is that people acknowledge like, hey, if they open Pithing Needle, maybe Soul Guide Lantern just isn't good enough anymore and there's been a slight uptick what i saw played in graph digger's cage again and cards like rest in peace which uh especially graph digger's cage being colorless sort of went back to this idea of like okay i can't i can't stop you from milling over your deck because you're gonna pithing needle my soul got lantern and i need an answer to that but if i play a graph digger's cage and i just take the 12 of the creeping chill at least i don't have to deal with the creatures and now we're seeing that back and forth again, where they're starting to run like Natural State and Reclamation Sage. So there keeps being like this back and forth between how do we sideboard against Upsal spells. And it's kind of just keeping everyone on their toes. And I keep commending Upsal spells players. I don't know if most of them are crazy brewers, but they keep coming up with solutions to every single problem you throw at them. This is why... We had that episode a few weeks back where we said, is Oopsal Spells becoming a problem? And I even was bold enough, I guess you could say, to draw the comparison with this deck 
to inverter, not for power level, but for the fact that they're so flexible in how they can attack the metagame. Because you said it yourself just a few minutes ago. One week, they're seeing like, oh my God, there's all the soul guide lanterns coming at us. Pithy Needle, we have the answer. Next week, they're bounced back. And also, now you're seeing this back and forth between Soul Guide Lantern and Graph Digger's Cage. This deck has the tools being in these colors, being in Sultai, and, and actually a little bit of white too. You have the tools to just be like, let's fix our cyborg week, week in, week out. Sure, we'll have off weeks. That's how the deck's going to function for its lifespan of it being in the format. One week will go off, have an amazing showing. People will adjust based on the list, bring the correct hate. And then they're like, well, we got to bring the right hate back at you now. Rinse and repeat. It's inverter. I agree. Well, I don't agree that it's inverter in the sense that it's inverter, more extreme inverter, because inverter was always there. And sometimes it just took a bit of it. Like, yeah, there were some weeks when like everyone was playing mono white devotion with four main decks Gideon intervention. Like, sure, that week we didn't see a lot of inverter, but we generally see like we kept seeing inverter. And when Oopsol spells, when people find an answer to it, the deck will actually be down for a week or two until it like swings back up because it finds a new answer. There's an even better comparison, I think. Dredge and modern. And I think this is a comparison we'll bring up a lot. So I was just about to say exactly why I don't make that comparison. Okay. Um, so yes, on face value, you want to make that comparison. I had that thought too. The reason I don't is this feels more like converter to me because of the flexibility pieces. The comparison with Dredge is the idea that Dredge needs to graveyard for the entire game. And this deck can kind of just play at least some semblance of magic with maybe like the Mammoth card, for example, to have some sort of pressure, have some game until it unlocks the graveyard and then it uses it to blow you up. Where Dredge is a little bit different, at least like modern Dredge. Like Legacy Dredge is kind of in the same boat, right? It just uses the graveyard for like one or two turns and then you die. But in that way, I think it differs from Dredge. But I can see the comparison because generally still, it does also punish the idea of like, if people don't pack graveyard hate, bring Oopsal spells, you're going to win a tournament. But the main difference is, but when you do bring Graveyard Hate, you better bring the right Graveyard Hate. And it's also up to the Oopsal Spells player to anticipate what Graveyard Hate is coming. Which, Dredge has a little bit in Modern, but they tend to just bring Natural State. No, um, Back to Nature, the one that's destroying your opponent gains for life. I forgot the name. I think Nature's Claim. Speaking of Oopsal Spells, they did win an event. Not necessarily the other challenge, but the Pioneer Champs event on the 28th the same day. So they did have a showing. And again, looking at champs, as we burn through this meta game, we have another representation of five total oops all spells. So we have total of what was that? Eleven oops all spells decks in the in these two events through 32. So I mean that's a big chunk of the field right there. Um or I'm sorry, through 64, but with the both of them. Yeah, but you know, the, the, the deck is, is on an upswing, and I'm not surprised. And I think Dom just brought up an interesting point going about the permanent soup too, which is a thing we were talking about a couple of weeks back, where we're thinking like, okay, so now we see a deck like, but it's just worked out a bit differently. We're getting to a similar conclusion, where it's like, all right, there's going to be a lot of burn. And now people are going to play decks that beat burn. And burn can be beat by like decks that are a bit fairer, maybe like, it's not the same decks haven't come up. We were talking about decks like Mono Black Vampires or Sultai Midrange, those sort of decks, which are beat by the Omnath, Nith Mizzet, Permanent Soup decks. And those are the decks we are coming back to now. 
and then maybe those decks can be beat again by the big red deck or a tuned Oopsal spells list, which can then, looping back around, perhaps be beat by really low to the ground aggro again, which I'm going to use to segue into the next challenge that happened for the sake of time, which was also on my mono red, which first got me thinking like, did it win two events? No, this is mono red aggro. It is the low to the ground, get you dead aggro with our good old friend cruising in from historic Beaumont Courier. And Brad's really excited about something. There's four collective defiance again. Yes. I haven't seen this since Inverter. Why? <laughs> I mean, it, it makes sense because it does... Oh, wait, it's three damage to deal three to an opponent. So I think it dealt four to an opponent. But I think collective defiance, just because it's a powerful card, like, it sounds weird. It has a lot of words on it, or, but, like, it does, right? It's, it's a very powerful card that can do a lot of different things, especially the top mode. I mean, a four mana... Yeah, but you can... The wheel. Yeah, the wheel's cool. The, the wheel has very interesting applications, which I have no idea how that weighs in in the meta now, but I think a very sort of skill... In that sense, Collective Defiance is a very skill-intensive card. <gasps> it's good against Oops All Spells. Kind of. You can wheel them and then hope they have a handful of poop. Yeah, that's what you did against Inverter. That's the exact same game plan. In, in, that, in that way, it works. Um, I think No, you did it against Inverter to stock up their graveyard again, I think. Because if they set up, if they played Inverter with like one or two cards in the library, they're like, ah, I'll wheel you, and they would instantly lose the game. But in that way, the, the wheel effect is a very sort of skill-intensive card. And this is why, like, there's no... This is the deck where I noticed the Graf Digger's Cage. Where it's like, instead of the Soul Guide Lantern, this deck has to graph Digger's Cage, because it's going to be proactive, working on a board. It can probably take the 12, and with this more, like, board-centric idea, and it has, like, Collective Defiance, which could do 4 to a creature, which is pretty reasonable, and, like, Goblin Chain Whirler, it can play the ground game that Oops All Spells plays when it's stumbling around because it can't use the graveyard. And you can just eat the 12, because your mana base doesn't hurt, like, almost at all. You've got Remnant Ruins and one Shadow Skull Smashing. Just make sure you're always at 13 life. So, in that way, that's probably how it, like, dukes it out with Oops All Spells. And aside from that, it's just super low to the ground aggro. So it can go under the permanent soup decks. Which might also be relevant for Collective Defiance. It deals 4 to a creature. What creature has 4 toughness? Omnath. And for an extra mana, you get to bolt your opponent too. Yeah. I mean, seems good to me. Before we uh, we wrap up the metagame section, I think there's probably a deck from one of the prelims that Dawn quickly wants to talk about. Because I, I, I miss this deck. And it, it is a doozy. All right, I've got it in front of me. So it, it's Mono Blue Devotion, which I actually thought was kind of boring at first. Um, but in that deck, there have been some innovations, mostly by splashing green. Um, so a few a few key things for that. Um, you're not really you're you're playing it for a very uh, small selection of spells. It's Risen Reef and Collected Company. You're already playing Master of Waves as your top end. So Risen Reef combos really well with Master of Waves because you just play your Risen Reef and your opponent's like, okay, what other elementals do you have? And then you play Master of Waves and you say, oh, I have like a fifteen or something. And then you flip you flip over a ton of cards in the top of your deck, um, and then good things happen. Um, 
this card, this deck's so dumb. I love it though. I love it. I'm playing this in the um uh, Pioneer Daily to tonight for MTG at home, by the way. Um, and then you also have Collected Company, um, which just synergizes with this like extremely creature heavy deck that uh I just have very few words for this deck. It's just beautiful. It's um mono blue tempo, but with just the right amount of spice, I guess it's the best way to say it. Yeah, I, I think that is a great way to put it. It is mono blue devotion. And so it's like, oh yeah, cool, you know, like oh you're making all the mana, putting it to a Gadwig. That's like, yeah, but I'm splashing green for a collective company. You're like, what? <laughs> and it int- it enables some cool things. Like Harbinger of the Tides is a card you can flash in for four mana. So you can like hold that up or have Coco. You've got you've got these flash speed cards. Uh, you've got Wizards Retort in the deck. Uh, these ideas you could use that it's not just collected company where some decks, like if you're playing against elves and your opponent has four mana and passes the turn to you, that's a collected company, right? But but this deck has other play to it. it, it it's not the version with uh, Leyline of Anticipation that we saw earlier in the format to have free devotion and the idea to give everything flash, but there is a lot of flash in this deck. Uh, so it plays this tempo-y devotion game plan where you can sort of like you start off with a overwhelmed apprentice, you know, Eldrain draft staple, probably. One mana, one, two. When it enters, mill your opponent for two, scry two. It's a wizard. It enables your wizard retort. It also just plays Thassa's Oracle fairly, which is always cool. Yeah, one thing I think is really cool about Thassa's Oracle is usually in this type of a deck, you're never going to generate enough devotion to where you can ever trigger the win condition. What it's there is to look at the top 10 or so cards of your deck and say, oh, this is the perfect one. It's going on top. But for this deck, because of that Risen Reef Master of Waves combo, uh, especially if games go long and they can't kill you, as permanent soup decks like to do a lot, and because you have a lot of bounce to be able to stop their creatures, which are their literal usual only ways to kill uh, kill you from killing you, you can just say, "Oops, I win," because I have a stupid amount of devotion, um, and I play a um, Thassa's Oracle. Like. I don't think that's the majority of time that you're going to win, but I think that there's a non-insignificant um, amount of time that you're going to win uh, using that. Of course, this isn't dominating the metagame. This is fringe. It, I think it barely won the prelim, but it's still really interesting, and I really like the deck. Yeah, like, uh, even, like, the you don't even generate just mana through your devotion, but even the idea, once you get one Risen Reef Master of Waves off, you're probably going to hit a couple of lands with that. And then you can play one of your Gadwicks, and Gadwick has the same logic as Hydroid Crisis, where if you cast one Gadric, uh, Gadwick, that probably draws you your second Gadwick. I could see, like, you go end step, you go, like, Collected Company into, like, Risen Reef Gadwick, gives you four Devotion, untap, play a Master of Waves, get five Risen Reef triggers, right? Play five Explorers or five Coiling Oracles, depends on when you played Magic first. And then you just have, like, a hundred, even just lands to work with. You're like, who's the ramp deck now, Omnath? <laughs> It's still Omnath, but this is a cool deck. It's still Omnath, but this deck is cool. <laughs> it just it, This is the deck that I look at, and I'm just like, God, I love this game. This game just makes me so happy. This is the deck that I look at, and I realize, will Brazen Borrower ever be an affordable Magic card? No. Like Every time I see all these decks, it's like, oh, this deck's really cool, and I have most of... Ah, uh, Brazen Borrower. Well, and there's one Uro in, because it's a Simic deck. Of course there's an Uro in. I was smart, and I bought my place at a Brazen Borrower right when the uh, the Challenger deck came out, and he skyrocketed down to like six bucks and then we're right back up to like 10 bucks again so stonks so with that before they do their mailbag i'm gonna have to leave but it's it was really good being on here so yeah great to have you on sure we'll have you on on a time in the future all right see you guys see you around bye don all right now for our super special segment that was spoiled by don 
It's the mailbag segment. But before we get to that, do you have any closing thoughts for the metagame as a whole? Anything you think about when it comes to the Pioneer metagame as we look forward? Any optimism? Any pessimism? I'm fairly optimistic. I will say I'm waiting for a new set. Right, I'm waiting for call time. This is always, we talked about this before because it's getting to December. This is always the, the draw, right? The time when it's the, the biggest gap between sets and that's like the least going on. And though I'm still excited for Pioneer and I'm still enjoying the format, I'm ready for a bit of a shakeup. I don't want an Eldraine shakeup. I don't want a Feral shakeup, but I want to see some archetypes that have been like fringy coming up or like warriors that's had some support before. I want to see what what those type of decks are going to do for the format, especially these keyword these permanent soup decks. I'm mostly a little tired of those. I don't find them particularly interesting. These decks like Nivmizet and Uro and Omnath that just everything you play draws a card and you just play a hundred permanents with just a lot of stats and a lot of words on them, and they're not my favorite decks. So I hope that Kaldheim especially brings some, some fun aggro. I'm not the biggest fan of Burn to play. Uh, I think it's a fine deck to have in your meta. I hope we're going to have like some, some funky aggro. I hope Kaldheim's going to bring some warriors with some big hammers and some big swords. Just kind of break this meta game open again. I agree. A shakeup that isn't format-defining. Yeah, I don't, I don't need anything format-defining. Because at the moment, there's not a deck where I play against it, and I'm like... Ah, this deck. And that's really nice, right? There's a lot of decks I like, and there's a lot of decks I'm fine with or not a fan of. But there's not a deck like, as everybody knows, and everybody had. When you played against Inverter, it's like, gosh, can't wait for this to be over. Yeah. There's no there's no match where I have that now. No matchup where I feel like, oh, wish for this to be over. The only thing that happens is now I play matchup, and it's like, I should probably have a better sideboard for this. But that's up to me. And then I can go back to the drawing board. And I often spend more time brewing decks than playing them. That is very true. I think on average, I spent like an hour a week tweaking Grixis, at least. And sometimes I go a week without like playing a game of Grixis because either I don't have a lot of time to do magic or I play a different deck. But I will still go back to playing to tweaking Grixis. I check in on you about every other week to be like, hey, any new additions to your Grixis deck? And you're like, I'm trying this one of. And then I'm like, how's it working out? It's like, I, I haven't fucking drawn it yet. I haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> because, because I spent so much time tweaking and less time playing. So I don't have, I don't play enough games to draw them. So I should probably just, I should probably start doing more things that I used to do. Where it's like, I don't tweak, but I write down an idea. And then I start playing. Mm. I used to have like a lot of notes. And I think we've talked about this before. Where I put like cast down in my deck you know, when cast down was relevant. And I would write down, I would have a document in my phone that would literally just cast down times drawn X times that I wish it was ultimate price X. Every time I would like stop in the middle of a game, I'd play like, all right, I've got that. Okay. Cast down, cast three times now, wishing it was ultimate price three times now. And that's how I would tweak decks. And I should probably go back to more like tweaking through practice rather than just theory craft. But theory crafting is easy. You can do it while you're in bed, chilling, mm -hmm. during breakfast, while being in a meeting that you don't want to be in. Oh, yeah. There have been plenty of times where I've been a uh, couple of meetings I've been in for work 
where like I'm listening, but like I have my my second monitor up and it's just all magic stuff that I'm looking over deck lists and stuff as I'm listening to this meeting. They'll call out on me and be like, hey, Mr. Asher, hey, how you about this? And I'm like, you know, it's a great thing. Uh, I wasn't really paying attention. So I'm just going to kind of go blah, blah, blah for a bit and just make something vague that works with the overall concept of what the meeting is about and give you a nice, good corporate answer that everyone nods in agreement, accepts, and we move on. And then I go back to just turtling. Yeah, because most people probably do the same thing. Maybe not magic, but something else. But for the sake of time, shall we move into the next section? We shall. So, like I uh, led into a few minutes ago, we have a new mailbag section of our podcast that we hope to do every single week. We have it up in the Discord server, so more incentive for everyone who is not a member of the MTG at Home Discord to hop in and join because members get the option to actually submit their mailbag questions every week. We have a channel and it's the only thing it's locked behind. If you're on the Discord, you can post. Yes. You don't need to play an extra round of Pioneer matches. You don't. We don't have a, a Patreon tier or whatever. It's just get on the server. Feel free to ask questions. Exactly. So we have a bunch of questions to kind of look over. We'll go over a handful of them, see how long it takes for each question to be answered, and then we'll kind of go from there. People have been answering the questions in the chat, which is fine, but that does mean we have a lot to read through occasionally. Yes. Like how someone asked what card do you want to ban and someone commented the basic island and then there was a bit of a discussion about how fun would it be to ban lands. Which is amazing that they're having a discussion because I have slow mode enabled for six hours on this thing. So you cannot post more than once every six hours. And they're still coming back later and following up with additional things to this discussion. You are just committed they set an alarm that's like ding 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 six hours it's like patrick oh boy 3 a.m and he eats the <laughs> <laughs> i was thinking the exact same thing oh boy 3 a.m but the first question i want to go with is a classic from matt himself with wizards moving uh, toward theme sets i.e kaldheim being based on uh, norse mythology Strixhaven being based on a magic school. What is a theme that you would like to see for a magic set? And of course, it would not be a Matt related question without him throwing in his own opinion as well. Personally, I think it would be really cool to see a set that has a superhero villain theme. So, Alex, if you could design a, th- a set that followed some kind of thematic, just like steampunk with uh, Kaladesh, Amonkhet, Ancient Egypt, Theros, Greek mythology, what would you want a set to be? I had a very long think about this because I thought it was very difficult because there's a lot of themes that have by now been covered mm-hmm. by magic. And otherwise, I'm thinking like certain stories. I was thinking like games I played, but then it would be like very like ham-fisted. And what I eventually ended up with is, and this is going to sound weird at first, I would want a proper medieval set. Just knights, dragons, wizards. And you're like, yeah, but we had Eldraine. But Eldraine had a, a fairy tale vibe to it and a lot of the art and fairies and and i think i would and this might be a super boring set which is why they've probably never done it but a a bit more i guess a bit more akin to what dominaria was when we returned to dominaria a bit more like classic fantasy even like maybe even more classic than dominaria because that's still like the weather light which is like this almost spaceship type thing maybe it will be like a set without any artifact creatures you know, just a very bare-bone knights, wizards, uh, kings, queens, that sort of thing. I said it would probably be very basic, so I could see it as like a theme for a core set. That would be a great set to bring smallpox back into standard. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, wait, yeah, but it would fit a sort of card. Or it would be like a place to like reprint cards like Fiendslayer Paladin or something, right? That like 
are like kind of basic cards, but I don't think it would make for like a great set because it's already a theme you can sell, right? You don't make like an MTGA uh, Magic Arena commercial, which is like, bring your knight and fight their knight <laughs> and joust yeah. and joy. Like that wouldn't really sell, would it? So I would say that's more of a sub, like a theme to a core set, which tend to be more bare bones anyway. But what's a theme you'd like to see that's maybe more or less discovered in Magic? Space. Like space exploration or like maybe like entering a new world kind of thing. And I know that's really weird and probably hard to get right with magic based on the lore that we have and everything that's been established. But if they could get it done and they could do it a proper way that feels still like you're playing magic and not a different card game, God, I would love to see it. Secret Lair, Star Trek. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, I guess they could do something like that, but... I want the thematic of it. I want like space exploration, kind of like No Man's Sky kind of thing of like the like the story could be like discovering a new world and like um, like you can make it like just like Pocahontas type of thing. I have an idea. Okay. Because I don't know if space exploration, what if they discover like, because the, the multiverse is, well, a multiverse, right? Which means that there has to be like universes, multiverses being born like constantly, right? Because it's like this endless infinity. What if, like, we go to a world that's, like, brand new? So there's, like, like little little life or something, or it's just, like, there's hardly any animals, and it's sort of, like, colonizing a new plane, but it would Ooh. still be more in a magic scene. So it would still just have, like, forests and rivers and mountains, but it would sort of be... I guess that's very Zendikar-y, but Zendikar on a more... They could like have Zendikar with a different theme because Zendikar is like established now, right? A lot of water, uh, hedrons, flying sky ruins, and they could have like a second take on what they could do with the Zendikar set. This would be the first set without humans. No, Lorwyn had no humans. Oh, whatever. Um, this is the first set since Lorwyn that has no humans. Um, but like, they could do that, like a prehistoric set. Doesn't have to actually be like dinosaurs. But you could have like very early like aquatic life and things like that. You could even have just like straight up like amoebas and stuff. Well, there maybe there could be even humans, but they would be the explorers, right? What if like the story is like, hey, the weatherlight is this ship that can travel through the multiverse, right? What if they found a way to make this a little more usable for the for like the higher ups? Because now it's literally the Weatherlight that has it, the Weatherlight crew. Mm-hmm. But what if they managed to build more, and now the people of Dominaria are actually able to travel through the multiverse somehow? This is breaking a lot of fundamental rules of magic of the story, but they'd find a way around it. They they broke it in the War of the Spark book too. Yeah, well, this is the old adage where like you know where uh, God closes a door, opens a window, kind of saying thing, where like it's a negative connotation of that. Where this thought or this idea made me think of what secret layer they could spawn from this. And I thought of Rick and Morty and I hate it. Like I like and enjoy Rick and Morty as a show. I don't want a pickle Rick card. <laughs> Look at me, I'm pickle Rick. I I would no. We don't, and, we don't and the need flavor that. text would just be like funniest shit I've ever seen, Chandra. <laughs> <laughs> no, it can't it has to be Dak. It has to be Dak Faden that says it. All right. So next question. Did you have one picked out? Yes, yeah, so I think I went uh, top to bottom proper, but I might have written them in the wrong order. It came down to Pioneer Horizons. Do we expect a set like Pioneer Horizons to eventually show up? And when? Now, my first thought is, please no. 
but it will happen. We're going to get it eventually. And I sort of jokingly wrote down my answer when Modern Horizons stops selling, because they need to hold this off for as long as possible, right? We don't need Pioneer Horizons two years into Pioneer. But Modern Horizons, I think, like, sold, like, crazy. Yeah, very well. It was very hyped, success, very successful set. Mm. So they probably want to cash in on Pioneer 2. So my expectation is like two or three years, right? 2022, 2023, I could see them, like, start experimenting with a set like Pioneer Horizons. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this is not a matter of do you think we'll ever get a Pioneer Horizons? This this is a win. Yeah, eventually you have to. I don't think you have to, but they think so because it makes money. Well, you have to in the sense of an eternal format, you know, getting something from a business perspective. Yeah. Now, will I be happy to see a Pioneer Horizons set? I don't know. Well, I, again, we talked about this before when we talked about the, uh, the, the 2021 slate of what was announced a few weeks ago or like a month ago now. And... You had the whole grown thing about Modern Horizons 2 when that was announced, right? And that we had a brief discussion like, well, this, this means we will have to have a Pioneer uh, you know, Horizons at some point too. This, they're, they're making this a common thing now. And I said it before and I'll say it then as well, or say it now as well. I'm going to withhold judgment for how a Pioneer Horizons set would be for the format until I see how they respond and correct with the first Horizon set with the second one for Modern next year. Because I think they very well could learn. And I think it's fair to say that Wizards has learned a lot over the last couple of years. And Horizons is probably a pretty good set to take some, uh, you know, take some mistakes out of and just, you know, throw them out the window. They, I don't know who who approved Hogak, but good God. My problem with Horizon sets is that they have to fundamentally shake up your format because otherwise they don't sell. Like, if we think of like Zendikar, like only a handful of cards generally like bleed over into pioneer we're not talking about like the whole set right when standard like let's say again numbers it's standard like 30 percent of the set is used because the rest is just draft chef in pioneer like 15 percent of the set is used in modern like five percent of the set is used again rough numbers so if you skip standard that like 30% is being used, those shoes have to be filled by Pioneer instead. Because otherwise your set just, nobody cares about your set or not enough people care about your set. So you need to have it shake up the format. So it has to be a ridiculously powerful set because otherwise it doesn't sell. But I will give you, I'll withhold further judgment until I see Modern Horizons 2. Maybe they get it right. And maybe Modern Horizons 2 is awesome, right? I mean, I hope it is. I mean, I think if you take away like Astrolabe and, you know, obviously Matt would make this a 20 hour argument about that card being banned or not. It absolutely should be banned. It deserved to be banned. It made the color restrictions. Of People were playing four color decks with Wasteland in it while not being able to be Wastelanded themselves in Legacy. And Blood Moon didn't do anything. So when you have a card that enables that kind of thing in a format, even though you could argue that the card itself isn't inherently broken, it makes the format inherently broken. But regardless, let's get off that. Um, and you'll get things like Hogak. And if you take those cards out of Modern Horizons 1, a great set. I like the idea of... I was mostly excited for the 15 reprints of old cards. Yeah. So that's a great opportunity for Pioneer as well. Last episode with Historic, where like, hey, 
historic with the anthologies, they just took some cool cards that definitely don't break the format, like, you know, Elvish Archdruid or something, and just put them in the format because it'd be cool, right? And that is a fun opportunity in a Horizon set. So I would almost rather see, like, a more daring core set or a core set with more random includes, right? If you put a core set and you literally put Elvish Archdruid in there and no other... Uh, elves, that serves the same purpose. And I like that aspect. I just don't know if I like like hundreds of new cards, because bound to be something stupid somewhere. But we'll get into a later question, and I'm going to talk about if we get there, because we don't have that much time left. But there are some Modern Horizons cards that are super cool that I would almost want to see in Pioneer. Yeah. This question should take two seconds, because this is simply a follow-up question to the Modern Horizons one, or the Pioneer Horizons one. How long until Pioneer gets lightning bolts, and do you think it'll be through a standard set or earlier mentioned Horizon set? Uh, Pioneer will never get bolt. It'll never be back in standard. I'm going to say that right now. I just don't think it can. I think it's one of those. Uh, I think we'll have. I think we'll have it in a couple years, and I think lightning bolt's going to come through standard. Ooh, see, I I feel like this is like a pseudo reserveless card for uh, for wizards for some reason about like like how they don't put thoughtsies in standard again after the last time. Yeah, but like, like that's how it feels to me. Well, okay, so I was thinking like it's gonna be through standard if they still don't figure out how to bloody design a standard set. Yeah, because let's be honest here, Lightning Bolt could have been in Therals, right? Like with Carrotos flavor, and it would have hardly mattered in the format. I think that format and like following up with Zendikar and stuff later on was so degenerate that you could have probably put Lightning Bolt in that format, and it would have been powerful but fine yeah especially in the context of theros because the aggro decks played things like annex and embercleave and were actually quite permanent based so they wouldn't even be super keen on putting a lightning ball in it they would because it's strong but it wouldn't even like mesh with the game plan very well so i think if standard keeps this power level you can actually put lightning bolt in it and i think we might have lightning bolt in pioneer one day Again, in a couple of years, which kind of coincides with my Horizons prediction, I think it could be in a set like that too. Okay. And I think it would be okay. I think Lightning Bolt, okay in the sense of not the power level, it would be super strong, but okay in the idea of like, I don't think it would like break the format and like, I don't think it's as disastrous as some people think it would be. If you print Lightning Bolt, you unban Smuggler's Copter, because that's what keeps Smuggler's Copter in check in modern, the, the ability of having Bolt in the format. Yeah, so like when the format becomes more powerful, we can do that sort of thing. Then I can see Lightning Bolt being fine. Okay, any other questions for you? Yeah, there was one which you might be able to say more about, but let's keep it kind of short because I don't have too much to say here. Uh, This was not magic related. Okay. And they say any books, series, or movies that are less well known that people should probably watch or see, uh, watch or read. Now, Mine is easy. I I hardly read. I'll be honest. I I don't read a lot. Uh, there is a book. Like I've only read like five books in the past ten, like eight years. I'll be honest. And some of them were either like Dutch and were about European politics, so nobody cares. Uh, one book, Reasons to Stay Alive by Matt Haig, which was a book against someone who like dealt with depression, and I think he also described very well like how that impacted the people around him which I thought was a very uh, insightful read, but not a particularly fun read. And series, I, I don't watch series. In the past few years, I've watched The Witcher, 
and that's it. Which I wouldn't say classifies as lesser known. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, that's definitely not a lesser known. And for movies, again, I'm going to go with a happy one, and it's Spotlight. Oh, Spotlight's great. Spotlight is a movie about the... Um, the Catholic Church. Children in the Catholic Church. And I think it is almost a must-watch for like most people living in countries that are like have had this happen in their country. Yeah. Like I'm from the Netherlands, we've had this happen and I think for everybody who lives in a country where this has happened, this is a must watch. Like we should like be showing this to kids in schools. Yeah, I agree. Very good movie. And you Brad, do you have happier ones? So, books easy. I have two. One is one that I've actually gone on an entire rant on this cast about. It's The Long Walk by Stephen King writing as Richard Bachman. Very great dystopian Kids have to go on a long walk. They're 16, 17, 18. It's a big contest. They literally walk from Maine through the Bible Belt, escorted by military, and you get three strikes. There's 100 kids. If you trip, if you stumble, if you slow down below the corresponding speed that's required, you get a strike. If you get your third strike, you get shot and killed on sight. It's a televised event. Um, People are watching. There's bystanders all around the roads and stuff like that as you're walking through towns. And it's very dialogue heavy. Stephen King is a king of dialogue, no pun intended, and fantastic book. Very well done. One of his most underrated books. And Stephen King is a phenomenal author, definitely a big name author, but he has some underrated uh, gems. Now, another one is actually brought to me by someone I started talking to recently. Um, And I have since checked it out, and I am going to bring it up to adding to this list. It is called House of Leaves. I am not going to get into what it's about, but I will tell you some pages are upside down, some pages are backwards, and some pages are blank. Yeah. That's pretty cool. You, you got to read the book. It's super cool. Um, let's see. TV show. Halt Catch Fire from AMC is pretty good. It's like a, a hacking kind of thing. I mean, not really super hacking. Watched it. Like it, uh, Hell on Wheels, thing. another AMC show, is great. Um, AMC's made a lot of good stuff, but they've had a lot of stuff that just doesn't get watched as much. If you're not The Walking Dead or Breaking Bad or Mad Men, it just didn't get in a lot of airtime. But Hell on Wheels takes place after the Civil War, follows a, uh, a Johnny Reb, a former Confederate soldier, who goes on this tirade basically trying to find people that were responsible for the death of his wife and kid and that's the entire first season that's how it follows him and he ends up getting involved in the railroad industry that's where these people he's looking for ends up taking him and hence the name hell on wheels he uh it follows that the birth of the railroad after the near destruction of our country super interesting super good great acting um and then as far as movie Man, movie is actually a really tough one. Um, I've seen some really good movies. I think Shape of Water is one that people don't recommend enough. It's pretty recent. It's a uh, Guillermo del Toro movie where it's like a love story between like... Isn't that with the alien thing in the bathtub? Yes. It's very well shot. Very great cinematography. Great acting. It's weird. I'm going to tell you that right now. It's a little weird. Without beating around the bush, she fucks a fish. So, you know, there's that. And there is a a very strange sex scene. Like, it's it's there. It's right up in your face, man. But it's such a good and well-made movie. Yeah, that, I think those would be my recommendations for all those. 
I think we'll do one more, and then I'm really going to have to get to bed. Yeah. But this is a fun one to end on. Brad, what is a plane that you would like to... So magic again. What is a plane that you would like to return to that we have not returned to yet? I think I know your answer, but... Yeah, it's Amonkhet. It's definitely Amonkhet. But for the sake of, you know, the fact that Amonkhet is from 2017, so it's not that old of a set, I'm going to say Kamigawa. Um, I, I... and I know that's beating the dead horse to an extent where a lot of people call for that set. But I've also seen a lot of people say, God, no, let's not go back there because they hate the set. So that one's pretty divisive, even though it's a more popular choice. I want to see it. I like ninjas. I think uh, the um, Bushido uh, mechanic and all that is super, uh, super cool. As long as I don't do Arcana and Soul Shift, I'm fine. Yeah, make busted stuff. I don't care. Let's just go back. No, but no, but. Soul Shift is super shit, and Arcane is unbelievably parasitic. <laughs> Maybe they can do more Splice. Because in Modern Horizons, again, some redeeming factors for the set, they did Splice that could just be spliced on an instant, or spliced on a sorcery, rather than Splice onto another Arcane spell. And I think Splice is an interesting mechanic. That could be cool. They could they could revisit those mechanics and like do them a little differently. That still like fits in the rules. Right, you could have a, a splice theme, just don't have it be an arcane theme. No, yeah, I get that. Uh, yeah, so I'll I'll have two answers for a more recent set and an older set. The more recent set, there's there's quite a few, but I'm gonna go for Ixalan because I think Ixalan is the set that has like gotten the most shit and has been the most under like valued and like underappreciated like ever. Mm-hmm. It is such an amazing set. I thought the story was good. The art was fantastic. I thought the tribes were cool. Like, I thought they were well done. I thought they always had a bit of an identity. And and there's a lot of unexplored story, too. Like, we know there is a whole different continent. At least one. I think even confirmed two. Because I think there's Ixalan, one where the Sun Empire is, and one wherever the vampires came from. Yeah. So... I think at least three continents, while there's only one, there's also a lot of story left behind. What happened with the Merfolk under Kumena, when Glenalendra, I think, came back and effectively told the vampires, like, what the hell are you guys doing? This is totally not the message that I left you guys before I went to sleep for, like, a hundred years. And I think there's a lot of story to discover there. Maybe the vampires are gonna be, like, kind of good guys now or something, or like, maybe they can dip more into the white vampires idea like i think there's a lot of story left and the old set is the easy one alara and there's a very simple reason for alara do you know what one of the five shards of alara is brad it's grixis yes yeah (laughs) however grixis on alara is a very creature-based plane with the main mechanic being unearth which isn't even like super up my alley but I think Alara was shattered and then, like, put back together. And I don't know if... Actually, Alara had Alara Reborn, but I think that was in the same block. So I would like to see if they could do a different take on Alara. It's also from a mechanical point, where, like, I we've had... In Pioneer now, we have Tarkir, and we have Ikoria, which are both based on the wedges, and I would like to see a set based on the shards. Just to like, obviously bias because I play Grixis, but also just the idea, just like how people want the mana bases for allied decks to be better because we've had a lot of focus on enemy colors. 
I hope we can also for the tricolors have some more goodies for the uh, the shards because there's very few cards that have actual shard identities. There's very few cards with the actual Esper colors in them, and Grixis. I like the Grixis colors are effectively only Nicobolas and Nicobolas related cards. Like I feel like there's hardly any other cards that are just straight up Grixis. And I would like to see more of those because I really like three-color decks, even not Grixis. I just like lots of goodies, difficult mana bases, uh, that sort of thing is magic I enjoy. And, yeah, you know, I don't want every four-color pile to be a wedge with a splash. Like, if that could be a shard with a splash, that, like, opens up different deck building possibilities and stuff. And I think Alara's just a cool concept. I love the idea that there was a set where every single card was multicolored. Like, I thought it was a cool gimmick. And a real challenge for Wizards, too. Like, are you going to pull that off again? Or are you going to, like, really display the multicoloredness of Alara in a different way? No, I get that. Um, so, yeah, that was our mailbag section for the uh, for the week. And I just want to thank everyone. So we still have some to go. Yeah. And we're going to go back on them of course. another time. We're going to try and catch up. We obviously assume that the first time we open a mill back, there's going to be a bit of a wave where everybody probably had a question in their mind. And the moment we open a mill back, it's like, oh, I can ask my question. And then all the questions came in. Yep. So we hope to every week do like more mill back questions than came in that week until we catch up. Yeah. Uh, one thing before we go to our reminders out the door again, thank you so much for everyone who submitted their questions. And real quick, because we forgot while we were doing it, questions were as followed. The uh, Modern Horizons uh, question with the lightning bolt follow up was by Scouter. The question about movies and TV shows and books was by Zeth4. And then the question about the returning of a plane was uh, by XX Sil Bill XX. So you guys, thank you so much for submitting your questions. And if you want to have your question featured and you're not in our Discord server, well, then what are you waiting for? Hop in. The link is in the description. And you can ask us any question your heart desires. We just ask very simple requirements. Nothing not safe for work. Nothing politically charged or anything generally inappropriate. Otherwise, ask us literally anything you want. Now, out the door, Alex, if anyone wants to see what's going on in that noggin of yours outside of the podcast and outside of the Discord server, where can they find you? Uh, the main thing I have now is Twitter, where it is at Disciple of Bolas, which my, it, it's a bit harder to find because it doesn't feature my name, but the art, my profile picture is just the Disciple of Bolas card. And it's, I believe, the Damnation Invocation is the banner. So you can find me there. There's currently still nothing on. But as soon as I become active doing different things, it will always be found there. So if you want to be first, follow me on Twitter. And his name, not his app, but the name he has underneath it is still Alex. So you can definitely figure it out from there. Ah, yes. Uh, and honestly, I forgot that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm here to remind you. I, 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 don't, I, I don't use a lot of Twitter. Well, speaking of Twitter, you can find me on there and any other social media you could possibly think of under the same tag. Bradcifer, B-R-A-D-C-I-F-E-R. It is Brad played with Lucifer. Ha ha. Very funny. And outside of that. We thank you so much for joining us this week. We thank you so much for hopping around and just being a part of this podcast with us. Please, speaking of hopping around, hop in the server. Join in, play some paper magic with us, talk about magic. Uh, you can participate in the next modern or pioneer season and maybe hop in and play in the Invitational. That could be cast by one of yours truly, being myself or Alex. A lot of cool stuff going on. And 
we try to make and uh thanks again to dawn of course thank you so much to dawn for hopping in not just for this podcast it was great to have her here today but of course as the streamer for the invitational really saved us there and you could have a chance to get involved in that kind of stuff too if you hop in the server we get to know you maybe you can uh, show us what you're capable of we're always looking for people to be able to do work in-house that's how a lot of us got our start here and that's how the server kind of works we have a lot of people that are just became higher ups within the server because they were so involved and invested into it and they just all have different skill sets we have different people within the server that have done stuff for us like nameless one of the admins he designed uh the music for us so our intro and outro music that's that's all him the music you hear in the invitational that's all him we didn't copyright anything we didn't go find stuff online we made that in-house so we're very proud to have that kind of stuff available to us. And that could be you as well. Do you have any special talents? Hop in the server and expend them onto us. Uncle Brad wants you. <laughs> but thank you again so much for hopping in and joining. And we will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.